How's working from home been going for you? Remarkably Remote from GoToMeeting will help you succeed in today's new normal. In just three minutes or less, we'll share simple but helpful tips to keep you on track. From managing your motivation, workload, and relationships, to hosting and attending virtual events that keep you connected with your colleagues and clients. So check out Remarkably Remote on your favorite podcasting platform or head to gotomeeting.com slash tips. Welcome to Rates and Barrels, episode number 96. It is May 19th. Derek Van Riper here with Eno Saris. On this episode, we are going to discuss several injury updates. Lots of players, of course, were expected to miss time if the season had started back in late March, but many of those players have been making progress in this downtime and could be ready to go for the start of the season. We're going to talk a lot about show-me pitches. Had a great mailbag question about those, so pitches that are not used often but are putting some extra thoughts in the heads of opposing hitters, and, and perhaps we'll find some pitches that should be used more than they have been to this point as well, and that might lead us to some possible sleeper pitchers along the way as well. You know, how's it going for you on this Tuesday? Good, good. I'm uh, trying to learn more about contracts. I'm looking at the Uniform Employee Contract, um, which is a 360-page document about... Um, the contract between uh, major league teams and uh, and their employees uh, that is relevant to this process of starting up. And I'm trying to decide if I'm going to read this whole damn thing or if I'm going to go find someone who knows all about it. <laughs> yeah, that, that second option sounds pretty enticing. <laughs> yeah, I do not, do not love reading legalese. No, not a passion of mine either, which is kind of a... <laughs> A major roadblock if you have aspirations as a young person of becoming a lawyer and you start reading uh, contracts and, and cases and the way things are, are written. And if you, if you don't really get into that, if you don't like that, you're not going to enjoy being a lawyer or you're just not going to make it into law school or at least through law school. It's it's hurt me a little bit as a baseball writer. Like I could be a better baseball writer if I liked reading the CBA more or if I liked reading the rule book more, I think. But it's um, it's just such the language is so dense. You have to reread things. Like I remember when that that thing happened where, um, who was it? Trey Turner got called out at first base uh, for obstruction, even though he didn't obstruct or something. It was like in the in the world. Was it in the World Series? Yeah. Do you remember that play? Vaguely, yeah. He like. He didn't run in the batter's line, and he didn't obstruct on purpose, but because he didn't run in the batter's line, he wasn't afforded the protection um, that he would have if he had run in the batter's line. Yeah, I'm looking at it now. It was game six. That was, that was, the, yeah. that was the play, and uh, it, it didn't really matter much in the game, which is probably part of the reason why it sort of faded from memory for but me. I, but I, re- I reread like four sections of the rule book repeatedly and came to different conclusions every time I read it. And then the fourth time was like, I think I understand it now. <laughs> and, 
Uh, and then on top of that, I just found it kind of absurd that, you know, a right-hander would have to kind of like run across over to this batter's line that was in foul ground and then have to jump back into fairground uh, to touch the bag. Um, this is just a weird banana you got to run. Um, and I guess, yeah, I guess everybody, you have to run bananas all over the, the field in order to, you know, hit bags and opt in, and run at optimal um, angles and stuff. I understand that. And I understand that lefties always have the advantage of getting to first base because they're closer. But I also do not think that was a good rule. Um, and it, it was like, I, I only read like 200 words, but I had to read the 200 words like four times. <laughs> just to understand what they were saying yeah i think you're the, the rule you're referring to in the rule book is baseball rule 5.09 it's already yeah. it's a strange way to count things by the way and then like a through c yeah it, it, there's, so this is part a clause 11 and i'm probably already botching like where exactly to find that in the rule book but that's how i'm gonna <laughs> yeah. read so I'll, I'll read it real quick a batter is out when in running the last half of the distance from home base to first base, while the ball is being fielded to first base, he runs outside, parentheses, to the right of the three-foot line, or inside, parentheses, to the left of the foul line, and in the umpire's judgment in doing so, interferes with the fielder taking the throw at first base, in which case the ball is dead except that he may run outside to the right of the three-foot line or inside to the left of the foul line to avoid a fielder attempting to field a batted ball. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, run, and there were a, a couple other rules that there were a couple other places where that interaction is covered, so that that's not the only place in the rule book. Uh, but... Uh, yeah, I had to read that one a few times to to understand what was going on. Yeah, always always great to have to read something several times to even <laughs> really get a clear idea of what it's supposed to tell you. Uh, but hey, that's how the rule book is written. It's amazing people don't just read it cover to cover for joy. Oi. Uh, <laughs> let's talk about some injury updates though, because the faucet for news has been kind of slowly turning back on the last couple of weeks. We're getting sporadic updates on players who are checking in here and there and uh, it's kind of funny i thought back to the new version of mr deeds the 2002 adam sandler one not the original mr deeds when steve buscemi who plays crazy eyes in the movie at one point says time heals all things except these crazy eyes and he's got these just googly eyes because that's that's crazy eyes that's what he's dealing with and most injuries will get better over time, unless we're talking about Aaron Judge's ribs, which I don't know what's going on there. It's one of the most bizarre injuries uh, in the time I've spent playing. And there was like a baseball. punctured lung involved. Like he's just yeah. walking around the punctured lung. Are his lungs so big that they can handle being at like half capacity? Yeah, like one one puncture wound isn't enough to make him <laughs> to notice take down it. Aaron Judge. It's unbelievable. And and the, the last update, I was looking through the Rotowire news feed, just kind of compiling different things that would make sense on the rundown today. The Aaron Judge headline said, next CT scan won't be last, which is uh, not 
great. It's like, oh, so he's having regular CT scans now. And this this originally happened late last season when he was diving for a ball. Like, that's apparently when this injury started up. And I don't know if he aggravated it or didn't let it heal by working out during the offseason. But um, he's one of the few players who has, like, a bone-related injury that doesn't seem to be a whole lot better, even if it has improved. You just jogged something in my head. Uh, two things. Yandy Diaz uh, had that bone injury in his heel that took forever. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, um, I believe that... No, no, bone actually. I think in some cases, bone is uh, bone injuries are thought to be uh, preferable to ligament injuries because of how blood flows to the region, I believe. I'm speaking a little bit beyond my expertise here, so I'm going to move on. Uh, the other thing that, that it comes to mind is the Rick Smits thing from basketball. And Rick Smits was a good player. He was very large, very tall, and he consistently had knee and foot problems over the latter half of his career that cut his career short. And, you know, then comes Yao Ming, and then comes some research that, you know, players over seven foot six or something, you know, Sean Bradley types, uh, ended up having a lot of injuries. And that correlates with some just regular uh, research about people and weight um, and how long you can how long you can live at certain weights. And it, it, it follows to me that Judge and maybe Stanton um, just by sheer size are uh, less likely to have uh, full healthy seasons. And it, it sounds like a duh when you're talking about Judge and Stanton, but, um, you know, what about other big players? I guess like an Alex Rodriguez type that uh, managed to be healthy. I, there's obviously an elephant in the room on that particular example, but it also has something to do with how somebody like an O'Neill Cruz um, may age and how he may uh, play in terms of uh, long-term value. Yeah, Frank Thomas later in his career dealt with a lot of injuries and he was a, a mass of humanity. I would say <laughs> yes, I mean, he was those very, vibes. very large man. Uh, he listed at six, five two seventy five. I'll, I'll take the over on, uh, on the two seventy five <laughs> for, for most of his career. But uh, it was funny because he was one of those players. I did this retro nineties, like all sports nineties draft with the Rotowire podcast guys. And, if you take away defense, which Frank Thomas was a below-average defender at a position that we don't care that much about, if you strip that away and look at what he accomplished as a hitter, he was incredible. He was one of the few hitters who had a slash line in the 90s that was at least in the neighborhood of what Barry Bonds did in that decade. And that was before Bonds went into turbo Bonds mode in the, in the early 2000s. But anyway, that's, that's my random Frank Thomas thing. Frank Thomas was the first uh, Frank Thomas Stadium Club 91, I think, was the first expensive card I ever pulled out of a pack. Um, that was his second year. Stadium Club was beautiful. It was a totally new card that was just glossy and, and, and really focused on the picture versus uh, anything else. And I'm sure they made some advancements in technology to to print something nice and glossy, mass producted uh, that way. Um, and because of that, I had an obsession 
uh, after that with 300, 400, 500 players. Uh, batters that could hit 300, OBP 400, and slug over 500. Uh, and that informed my, when, you know, about 10 years later, I started playing fantasy baseball. That card would, and th- that slash line was still informing my uh, choices as a fantasy baseball player. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's pretty cool when you when you look back at a player like that who in this era would be outstanding too because he he jumped off the page and offensively charged. Oh, what would he have done with a juice ball? Yeah, I well, I think he's very Stanton esque in a lot of ways and probably a notch better too when you look at the the year over yeah, year because of the strikeout rate. strikeout rate. Yeah, like I mean, pitching is better now, so that would change a little bit, but. I don't think it would more than double his strikeout rate. It'd probably be a, a push into the twenty percent range if he played in the modern era. Yeah, maybe. But he might also have had like a sixty-five homer season. Yeah, definitely uh, had the raw power to do it. But uh, you know, the card I always wanted—the Frank Thomas card—I always wanted, and I was I had a hard time finding these as a kid. Was uh, his Leaf rookie card? Mm. I don't know where if those are mostly sold in Canada or what the story is with that that 1990 leaf set but that was always the Frank Thomas oh, rookie card that yeah. I, I didn't see it anywhere I didn't see it in stores I, I didn't see packs of 90 leaf available very often and just never never had a shot at getting one in my collection it's true I don't have a ton of leaf also I need to get get my mom on the phone here my recollection of my baseball card collection is much more expansive than this box you gave me <laughs> so I don't know if uh, if my memory is incorrect or if there's another box there floating around. I have to see if my I got a I got like a like a nineteen is it is it possible nineteen fifty Bowman Yogi Berra? Wow, where'd you get that? Uh, yeah, nineteen fifty. I think I have a nineteen fifty Yogi Berra. Um, I was kind of into it. I I I. Saved all of my allowance and bought uh, cards. I, you know, one of the ones I really remember is saving all of my allowance uh, to buy. A, I saved a week's or two weeks worth of allowance to buy one pack of 1986 tops. Hmm. One pack, and there was one card in there. Um, yeah, what did you what did you want from that set? I'm trying to think back, what was in it? Uh, bonds. No, second. It was a rookie card, second baseman. Uh, it's too late for a Ryan Sandberg rookie card, isn't it? Yeah, 80, 82 tops. Eighty-two tops. Yeah, I bought an old. I bought an old pack. It was. I was. It was like eighty-six or eighty-seven. The guy had a box of eighty-two tops, and it was a really bad idea. It was either eighty-one or eighty-two tops. It was a really bad idea to buy because it was one of those sets where there's like two good cards mm-hmm. and there's no real reason to do it, but he knew what he was doing. I mean, he, he made some money off of those, but I bought one and I pulled the, uh, the Ryan Samber rookie and it's, um, well, I thought it was a one where he's, there's like two other rookies on it, but maybe not. I'm just saying 1983 tops. But you still have that one, huh? No, but I've got the one where, where there's like three people on it. Oh, that's Donruss. 
Was it Donruss? Yeah, I had a friend that had that card. The, I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. The the Ryan Sandberg rookie card. I'm trying to remember who the other player was on it. I'm sure I'll turn it up on Google. Now Donruss, actually, you know what? That's him by himself. There was one that he had with another player. It's on like it, a though. maybe it's a rated rookie. Like it's like like a like a rookies. You know, it's like one of those like special cards where they have like star rookies next year. I can picture it, and let's see. There was the one that had the the little photo of the headshot in the lower left corner, and then yeah, him hitting three. above it. And the Donruss one is the one with the bat across the bottom, and the glove to the right. I remember remember that one from being a kid. I swear you you, you were right that there is a maybe it's not a rookie card though. Maybe it's like an all star card close to his rookie season that we're thinking of. Mm. Well, I I you know. <laughs> we still have time before the season starts, so maybe we'll have one about uh, about my card collection and, and finding out if I indeed do have more cards than I thought I did or fewer. <laughs> anyway, uh, I don't know where I'm going with that. Um, but yeah, I used to love collecting cards. Yeah, it's memorabilia week at The Athletics, so lots of cool stories up. There's a, a $50 Okay, maybe for Thursday, challenge. I'll find out which Ryan Sandberg card that was. I also have these... You know, there's some decisions I made that I'm like, uh, I don't know about that decision. Like, I kept all my pennants. Do you have? Did you have pennants growing up? I did. I think some of them are still in my parents' basement, actually. So I've got a chance to reclaim them and put them probably in my basement someday when I have a basement, I guess, or in a garage or something. Yeah, I don't know. I'm looking at them like, I don't know. I don't know. I don't, you, like, I don't. You even figured out what to do with them? Yeah, like I don't know. Like I like I have a Minnesota Timberwolves pennant. Yeah, I don't know. How what? and why did you get that? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh and some of them are just like kind of cheesy looking and they're pretty faded. And they're just like a weird idea. And I just don't I don't think I'm gonna dedicate like the top of my office, the roof of my office. Uh, I don't know. They just I I I I almost threw them out. If anybody wants them, I, I can probably send it to them. <laughs> yeah, no, like I was kind of saying, they got a, a story on The Athletic about the $50 eBay challenge where I think oh, you, yeah. you spend 50 bucks and you try to get the most interesting combination of items, memorabilia-wise. Uh, I don't know if the pennants would make the cut. I think the, the stuff that they're finding is quite a bit uh, more bizarre and rare. But I think there's probably something cool to do with pennants. So if you have an idea, if you're listening and you're like, yeah, I did this with my pennants and it's awesome, uh, let us know. Rates and barrels at theathletic.com. Uh, the injured, uh, injury updates, though, that I want to talk about. Most I just want to run through a list of names and we'll talk about a few of the guys that are the most interesting because some of these guys are pitchers with arm injuries, right? Like Shohei Otani working his way back from Tommy John, but he's been throwing off a mound for, I think, about a month now. And he could be full go for the start of spring training, which was definitely not the case when spring training previously started we didn't know when exactly he might be ready to pitch in games so his situation is totally different uh, but guys like griffin canning and uh, Corey canabel and rich hill those guys were all positioned to miss a good chunk of the season probably a third of it maybe even half in some cases they've all got a chance to be healthy you know mike clevenger had that knee surgery back in mid-february he said he was feeling completely normal in late April, so he's probably 
the safest of all these guys. James Paxton might be relatively safe. We talked a lot about him with Derek Cardi when we were back at Labor. Um, Jordan Hicks probably coming back in July. I mean, that's only going to be missing uh, a few weeks potentially. Maybe he's the answer in that bullpen. We've talked about the St. Louis bullpen as a possible trouble spot. And then there are a few position players as well. Aaron Hicks, you know, he's been making progress coming back from Tommy John as well. Might might DH initially and then move to the outfield at some point. Uh, and Eugenio Suarez with that shoulder surgery. He thought he might have been ready for that March opener. That seemed like he was pushing it to me. And now the Reds do expect him to be full go if spring training gets underway next month. So as you start thinking about that group of players and, and other guys who were dealing with injuries, you know, it's a pretty big difference in value because some of those names I mentioned are good players who were pretty much undraftable in redraft leagues, and now they might be mid or at least late round picks that you actually want to have. Yeah, yeah, I think uh, I had a more qualified, you know, well, you know, how much will they be able to interact with their teams? How much will they be able to do exactly what they want to with their rehab? I I was more qualified about that early on because we were on such strict lockdown that it felt like, well, you know, how much do we know about Griffin Canning if he's just like throwing against the wall at home, you know? Um, and you know, how many tests can he have when nobody can go to the, the hospital unless they have COVID and so on and so forth. Whereas I'd say now, uh, most, uh, most, most states have opened up, um, elective surgeries. Um, you, you can go to the hospital, you can get an MRI, you can get a CT scan. Um, and, and I think probably baseball players had some private clinics they could go to anyway, um, during that time. And I've talked to more player development professionals, and it's hard to get a sense of all of baseball is a monolith when it comes to this kind of thing. But most of them insist that they are in constant contact with their players and that they have a good sense of where people are in their rehab and where they are in their uh, their prep their prep work. So. You know, there's some complications about admitting that publicly because no one's supposed to be working and you don't want to uh, require that a player does anything that puts himself at more risk um, right now. Um, so I don't I think there's been some inconsistencies about what player development people want to say publicly and what they'll say privately. But I would say I'm much more uh, of an unqualified. Yes, these players benefited from the time off and are probably in a good place in their rehab and are getting to the time now where they can have massage therapists and rehab therapists and uh, they can have those types of interactions in a safe manner um, to, you know, progress their rehab. So I, I think that for the most part, um, this this has been a good. The only one I can think of is like Mitch Hamburger had like surgery like right before this whole thing happened. Um, and he hasn't been able to have like massage and rehab therapists, but even him at this point, I'm sure I haven't checked with him super recently, but I'm sure that like, um, he's had some interaction with a rehab therapist. Yeah. I mean, back in the first half of April, he had no timeline to return to baseball activities. And I would imagine that over the course of the last almost six weeks now, there's probably been a little bit of progress, even if the injuries he's coming back from, they still could cost him a good chunk. Not a lot of people season. have had the two surgeries at the same time. So, <laughs> yeah, um, we had like back and hernia surgery. 
So he was always a kind of a long shot. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I think of the pitchers I mentioned, the two that I'm probably the most hesitant to rely on this year are Griffin Canning and Miles Michaelis. Because in the case of Canning, I think we talked about this at the time, the Angels, for one reason or another, have tried to delay Tommy John surgeries and have had very little success doing that. And it just seems like every pitcher coming through that org tears up his elbow and ends up going down to Tommy John at some point. Uh, so I'm just a little bit worried about him, given what he's dealing with, the treatment, and where he's at overall, even though he's you know, making progress towards trying to, to pitch. Now, the other guy, I think, Michaelis, it's a strained flexor tendon. A lot of times that injury kind of becomes a, a problem with the elbow, even though the flexor is more of a, a forearm sort of problem. I think those two guys just stand out to me as two that I don't necessarily have to go draft just because they're closer to being ready to contributing. Michaelis was fairly cheap. Canning was the one where the price was inflating because so many analysts were pumping over the offseason, including myself. Um, it's a moving target right now, price in auction, price in draft. You know, it's like, I'm not sure what that means. I feel like, what do you think, like 80% of drafts are done? I think it's probably 50 to 60%. I think it's a, it's a little mm. lower. I think the timing of when things stopped really just chopped the number of drafts that were uh, on the schedule and completed in half. That's right, because you'd like to really... the One of my favorite things to do if I had total control over a draft is to have it like the last weekend before the regular season so that there's no like spring injuries that pop up and you have the most information you can have. And so that was, that was like, that's probably the biggest draft weekend of the year. And that was ahead of that was, that was after the, uh, the shutdown. And I'm looking at the NFPC ADP report. There have not been a lot of drafts in may understandably, because <laughs> if you're playing at that level, you want more information. There are five drafts that have been completed in may. Uh, Shohei Otani has an ADP of 128 just for, the sake of comparison here, uh, Griffin Canning. Is that going up? Uh, that's. I, I have to look back at my report from okay. last month. I think that's a little more expensive than he was in March. Uh -huh. Canning hasn't been drafted in all five of those drafts. The earliest he was taken, any of them, was 308. So he's still pretty cheap, especially Long compared shot. to where he was before. Uh, Rich Hill is a guy that I'm pretty I'd optimistic about. I'd spend a 308 about. pick on him. Yeah, Rich Hill is... Early pick at 232. He's drafted in all five, ADP of 250. He's probably got, I'd put an up arrow next to Rich Hill. I would expect him to creep up probably at least inside the top 200. Just because, like, he's one of those guys, you look at him year over year, even though he misses time, you get elite ratios. And we've talked about the Twins as an organization that we trust with how they handle pitching. I, I think Rich Hill can just kind of pick up right where he left off, which is a pretty high level. I wouldn't consider this a second Tommy John, which has a higher failure rate. I don't know if it's semantics, but this is a revision. And I think it's significantly different than a full Tommy John because what I've read about revisions is that the, uh, failure, the failure rate is really low. So I do think there's a good chance uh, he pitches you know, what, 60, 70 innings this year? 
Yeah, I, I think that's the number you would expect from him if you're kind of putting 100 on your DeGroms and Coles, right? I mean, you can get more than 100 from those guys, but if you're just sort of projecting based on past injury histories, blisters, With the all the different things. uncertain age, length of spring training, I doubt we're going to go over 100. Yeah, I, I think you're probably right in that those first few starts that count are probably more likely to be four and five inning starts than six and seven inning starts. You're going to have some limitations probably the first couple times through the rotation. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, Rich Hill, like, look at the ratios the last three years. 366 ERA was the highest in 2018, down to 245 last year. The whip between 109 and 113. And you're getting more than a strikeout per inning for the innings he does give you. That's a very valuable pitcher. So a guy that I wasn't going near with a full season, but someone I will be drafting and moving up in the rankings quite a bit uh, as we get closer to uh, to starting I think it back up. those projections are a little aggressive on, I don't know what it is, the maybe the BABIP, I guess. But the last four years, he's had basically a 270 BABIP, and everybody's projecting him to have a 300 BABIP, which I guess makes sense, but... You know, there's also something he's very good at mirroring the spin on his on his fastball and curveball. I don't think we've done a lot of interaction between that and a BABIP. Uh, It would seem to me that that could lead to a lot of pop ups and uh, ground balls, weak ground balls, uh, that combination, you know, because you're hitting under the fastball and over the curveball because you're constantly thinking trying to guess which pitch it is, and both of them have great spin efficiency and go in opposite directions. So um, I, I have a feeling that um, he's uh, going to be more like his Zips projection and maybe better. I mean, there's all these projections for a 4-plus ERA. Zips has a 3.86 and a 1.22 whip. I mean, even that, at 40 years old, I feel like he can do that. Yeah, part of it could be be the league change you know bumping those numbers up a little bit but i would take the under on pretty much all the ratios that i see projected across the board uh, on rich hills Fangraphs page right now uh clevenger um, is interesting he came up on your your aces report that we talked about last week in that he had uh, multiple pitches that had an above average stuff score and mm-hmm. above above average command of all those pitches right like he checked those boxes he said he was feeling completely normal in late April after having that surgery for on his knee. I don't have any hesitation at all with Clevenger as at least a top 12 pitcher, but I think he's probably going to be inside the top 10 once rankings get updated. My only caution with Clevenger, though, is that in, in keeper and dynasty leagues, he's older than you realize. He's already 29 years old, so um, don't lose sight of that. Just because we've only seen him for a few seasons in the big leagues doesn't mean he's 25 or 26. He's a few years older than you'd expect. Yeah, age with pitching uh, is just a tough one for me. I don't really know. Yeah, I think um, looking at my list now, knowing what I know about injury, I would I would move him ahead of Paxton, uh, probably ahead of Nola Corbin Snell. Uh, so that would put Clevenger battling Flaherty and Glasnow around sort of 12 to 15 in there. Um, that makes sense to me. And age and pitching is, is a strange one for me because uh, we know that, for example, that fastball velocity goes down, but we also know that fastball velocity going down with age uh, affects relievers more than starters because starters have more pitches. 
And it seems to me that there's like a moment at which a pitcher, you know, proves that he's a healthy pitcher that has lots of pitches and can adjust season to season. And then age matters a little bit less. You know what I mean? Like there's something about like the interaction between track record of success and age um, that people kind of overemphasize the age. I mean, how how many years do we have to watch Justin Verlander do this before we're like, you know, and I even asked a, a person in player development, like, what do you think the end will look like for Justin Verlander? And, you know, like how many more elite seasons does he have left? And most of them said he's going to be elite, you know, almost to the end, and it'll just be more and more injuries. Hmm. So, I mean, a little bit like what we've seen with Rich Hill, right? Yeah, like obliques and forearm, elbow, whatever, those types of those things will start to be more more of an issue. Nagging hamstring or quad injuries could be anything. Yeah, it's not necessarily the big Tommy John or shoulder because they've kind of proven that they've got these good mechanics that are repeatable and they've done it for a while. It's more like just the old man stuff. Yeah, no, that's uh, that makes a lot of sense, and it's kind of a question of well, how long does he want to pitch? You know, that's that's part of the question there too. His contract runs out after twenty twenty one, so he's got this year and next already taken care of. Uh, I would assume if he's still pitching at anything close to this level, unless he's just bored with baseball, like he's going to probably sign another deal and, and try to keep it oh, going. I, I'm going to call it now. He's going to sign like a two-year $50 million deal with the Dodgers. Two and 50 to the Dodgers. Interesting. Because he'll that way he can go to the NL, make it a little bit easy on himself. You know, join a, a team that has historically not minded giving out short, big contracts. I think that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, uh, that, that could definitely be the path for him. But uh, again, keep an eye on the injury news because we're starting to get some updates on players who had been shut down and they're at least doing something. Side sessions, bullpen sessions, whatever it might be. Uh, like Aaron <laughs> Hicks had started taking batting practice this week. Like that's That's progress. Every once in a while, I just... I open up my my teams and just look at them. <laughs> just stare at There's them. There's like I can't think of anything to do. <laughs> <laughs> I picked up Rowdy Telez in my twenty team, um, in my twenty team dynasty because he got dropped for a prospect, and I'll tell you why I did. It was on this podcast that we were talking about why I picked up why I liked Rowdy Telez. See if I can jog my memory. Why do you like Rowdy Telez? Mm, it wasn't what are you because... talking about. Oh, hard hit angle. Hard hit angle. So it's from the the Jeff Zimmerman piece. Yeah, but I I also wrote about him. I think late last season as a guy uh, who had a better, or in the off season as a guy who had a better better barrel rate than the uh, power output that he gave. Yeah, ninety one percent. Uh, or 91st percentile, that is, with the barrel rate. So 13.2% uh, barrel rate. A 91% barrel rate would be really good. And as a guy who strikes out 28% of the time, he fits into my high variance piece as well as the kind of guy that could, like Chris Davis uh, once had a half. You you were talking about Chris Davis had a half where he hit like 290 and, and hit like 30 homers. Yeah. yeah was and struck out nuts. 30% of the time. Mm-hmm. You're almost like, well, Roddy Telez is like a, a great kind of uh, last pick, kind of shot in the dark type player because 
if he has a great spring and plays himself into the, the regular DH role or whatever role it is, um, he could have a season where he just randomly hits all the good parts of his streaks and hits, you know, 275 with, uh, with like 20, 25 homers in a, in a half season. Yeah. And he's just very overshadowed on that team because they have so yeah. much interesting young talent around quality, him. Quality, quality batted balls, though. I like it. And I think maybe what's uh, lost in, in all of this is that they could pretty easily just let him DH. I mean, like the depth chart has Lourdes Gurriel, Randall Gritchick, and Derek Fisher uh, currently atop the three spots, but Teoscar Hernandez could move from primary DH to one of those outfield spots. Like Derek Fisher's tooled up, but there's no guarantee of playing time there. It's easy to see any one of those three of those four, at least between Hernandez, Fisher, Gurriel looks safer than those two guys. I think one of those guys could flop and just leave a path to regular playing time. At least, and if Fisher Rays. ever converts his tools into better defense, I mean, he's the guy who looks like a center fielder on this team. So I would say that you know his best opportunity is to 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 showcase better defense than than Randall Grichuk. I, I'm fully aware that Fisher hasn't quite done that to to date, but he's really fast. And like you'd think he could play center, whereas Grichuk is not as fast and seems to miscast as a center fielder. So I would say Fisher has a chance in center. Guriel uh, has an injury chance. He's he's had a fair amount of injuries in his career so far. And Teoscar Hernandez probably has the biggest bust rate, almost as big as Telez's, because as much as he's done so far uh, for a 27 year old. He hasn't, who's had, you know, 1,200 plate appearances. Uh, he has a career 106 WRC plus and some of the worst defense in the majors. Yeah. And has only put up two wins in four seasons. Yeah, keeping him off the field could be a priority. And the other path, of course, Travis Shaw is, is a top depth chart at first base. I mean, if he can't Who rebound, may have from broken last something season, he can't fix. Yeah, if he can't rebound from last season. They're not going to play him. He's going to be a bench guy pretty quickly too. So first base. Then you throw on top of all this the fifty man roster, which brings basically everybody's ceiling down uh, because they're going to do more mix and match, and brings everybody's floor up, which means that I mean Tellez is going to make this roster. If it's a if if it's a thirty man roster with with a twenty man taxi squad, Tellez is making this roster, and he's going to play. Well, why not? Like, if you have room for both Hernandez and Roddy Telez in the roster, why not just platoon them as your DH? Yeah, exactly. So, still a deep league guy, but... Yeah, I, I think that's probably the, the cutoff uh, for me at this point. Like, 15 teams or, or deeper, but a guy who's more interesting that he probably gets credit for. The Black Tux believes every groom deserves a better experience when it comes to finding formal wear, whether that's a suit or a tuxedo, for their big day. Did you know the Black Tux was actually started by two guys who had one of the worst tuxedo fittings you could imagine? It turns out they aren't alone in this frustration. Just listen to these one-star reviews from competitor tux shops that shall not be named. Go elsewhere. This place is pretty terrible, unless you're dressing like your grandpa for Halloween. We felt weird buying a suit from somebody so unhappy. We were afraid his bad vibes might follow us to our wedding day, so we left. The Black Tux has an easy online ordering process that brings your suit or tuxedo straight to you. Just pick a style at theblacktux.com and request a free home try-on so you can feel the fit and quality before you commit. 
And if online isn't your style, the Black Tux has showrooms all over the country where you can find your fit and plan your look. From there, they'll ship your order two weeks before your wedding so you can check it out one last time. Talk about commitment. Whether you're buying your outfit or looking to rent, you won't find a formal wear experience or designs like the ones you'll find at the Black Tux. If you want your wedding to be remembered for the right reasons, order your suit or tuxedo at theblacktux.com and enjoy 10% off with the code DRAFT. That's theblacktux.com with the code DRAFT for 10% off your purchase. The Black Tux, formal wear for the moment. All right, you know, the question we got this week in our mailbag that inspired a a good portion of our show came from Isaac, and it was just a question about show-me pitches. Uh, Isaac wrote, in a recent episode, you talked about Mitch Keller having a show-me pitch in his arsenal. I've definitely heard the term show-me pitch used a lot. I've always assumed it means a pitch you don't use very often, whose purpose is to add an extra layer into the hitter's thought process. Is that what a show-me pitch really is? Because if a show-me pitch is just kind of a not very good pitch that a pitcher will throw from time to time, I wonder if it's actually a good idea to throw a show-me pitch. If you could define what constitutes a show-me pitch as in a pitch that's thrown 5% or less or whatever it might be, I wonder how those pitches would rate out across the league. Thanks. Love the show. Isaac. So I think step one, how do we want to define a show me pitch? You know, I want it to be more than 5%, but less than 10%. Um, the reason for the 10% cutoff is, uh, steeped in research. Um, uh, Mitchell Lickman did some research that proved that if you uh, add an extra pitch that you throw more than 10% of the time, you soften the three times through the order penalty. So I feel like over 10%, is generally my idea of you have that pitch, you use that pitch. If you threw 100 pitches, you threw 10 of them. That seems significant. Um, And there's this research saying that throwing something 10% of the time gives you tangible value. So um, that's that would be like owning a pitch. Less than 5%, I feel like there's error in... uh, like error in, in, in like describing the pitch like what is it called like pitch classification error basically where you know sometimes it'll show up that a guy throws a cutter three percent of the time but there's really just a bunch of uh, sliders that looked a little different you know um so i don't really and that's in like a hundred you throw a hundred and you threw them twice um you know that that doesn't seem like you're really doing much with it um, so, uh, it's a fairly tight range, five to 10%, but it, 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 it actually produces, um, uh, good results. If you look at it, like, um, we're going to focus on the changeup, but show me curves, uh, include Kyle Hendricks, uh, curve, Lucas Giolito's curve, uh, Kenta Maeda's curve, uh, Martin Perez curve, Anibal Sanchez curve, Wade Miley curve. A lot of those curves are like thrown by changeup guys. Um, and it's like, uh, maybe something that's of a similar speed to their changeup, but, uh, or maybe even slower and, and, and just looks different. Um, and so that, uh, can keep somebody from identifying their changeup faster or sitting changeup or whatever it is. Um, so I, I think that the definition was okay. Um, and generally what, uh, a pitcher is trying to do with it is, um, yeah, just uh, put something else in their mind so they can't just eliminate, uh, and get down to, he's either going to throw me a fastball or a slider this count. Um, and I think that they go to it more often when they see people kind of key holding, it's called key holding them. Um, when they see people maybe take really confident swings, uh, on a certain couple of pitches, they have to say, okay, I need to get in their head more. Uh, I'm going to throw a curveball now, or I'm going to throw a changeup now. It's not my best pitch, but it's something totally different that they don't expect. 
Yeah, I, I like this this concept a lot, mostly because I think what we're going to find as you put the research together and, and kind of get this got this ready for the show. There are some pitches that are not used a lot that could be used more, and that might point us to guys that would have one more really effective tool to use going forward. Uh, so, what were some of the the more interesting show me pitches that you found as you put this together? Okay, so I looked at uh, pitchers, change up pitchers uh, between five and ten percent, uh, and I found. Uh, about 13 of them. And in terms of swinging strikes or, or, or whiffs per swing, uh, they got 27%. The average is 29%. In terms of called strikes, they got 40%. The average is 40%. And in terms of stuff, uh, they rated it a 95 collectively. Uh, so below average stuff, not a great pitch, uh, but able to get some called strikes on it because you get some people frozen saying, oh man, he threw a changeup. He never throws a changeup. Um, but below average, uh, wisp per swing, once they swing, it matters that it's not great stuff. Um, so I, I think that that's, that, that fits the definition. Uh, the outcomes fit the definition. Uh, the, the players fit the definition. Uh, the show me changeups came from, um, uh, pitchers like Zach Eflin, uh, Julio Teron, Chris Bassett, Shane Bieber, Zach Wheeler, um, Trevor Bauer. Uh, Mike Fultinavich. So these are players that are known more like more for their breaking balls uh, as a group. And uh, so therefore, and, and don't have maybe standout uh, change-ups, um, but use it to, to decent effect. I mean, to get nearly average results from below average pitches, that's, 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 a, that's what a show me is. You use it, you don't use it so much that the bad stuff on the pitch shows up and people start looking for it and hitting it. Uh, but you use it enough to get uh, steal a called strike here or there, uh, maybe steal a whiff when they get badly fooled. Yeah, it makes me just think of the worst pitches in the big leagues. And the problem might be that not they're not just necessarily bad in terms of actual movement or velocity, but they might just be used so much that hitters know they're coming and that it completely craters their effectiveness. Yeah, there's a total relationship there where you can't you can't always say, uh, you know, this is a really good pitch. He should throw it more. It doesn't always work that way because there's an equilibrium that's found between the batter's expectation and uh, the pitcher's uh, sort of rat raw natural stuff on the pitch. Um, so, for example, the uh, worst rated uh, changeup on here is Senzatella's. Uh, it got a 67 stuff plus from the driveline number, which is uh, really, really low. Um, and yet he got a 45% called strike rate on it uh, versus a 40% average uh, on, on changeup. So uh, if he was able to uh, put it in the strike zone, he would he would uh, he would get some called strikes out of it because they just didn't expect it. Uh, the best changeups by stuff plus. Um, uh, are interesting. Shane Bieber got a 111. Uh, Trevor Bauer got a 106. Boyder got a 107. And Hauser got a 104. Um, so those are the best uh, overall. Uh, Garrett Coles is, a, a, is league average, and he got a lot of whiffs off of it. I think that's just because people are trying to gear up for that fastball. Hmm. Um, 
So that, you know, the overall fastball velocity has a lot to do with how, what the outcomes are like. Uh, but Boyd got good results on his changeup. And I would say uh, that, you know, he got 38% whiffs uh, per swing and uh, 29% was league average. Uh, and uh, we saw him working on it in the spring, hardcore, uh, to the point where he was doubling up hitters uh, on changeups just to see how that would work. Um, and the changeup had significantly different depth um, and, and shape to it. So, uh, and it was already rated uh, one of the best among the show me pitches. So, I would say that if there is upside for Matthew Boyd this year, it comes from that changeup. Um, I think the Shane Bieber thing is is really interesting to see that he got below average results um, on the changeup, but this by rated by stuff, it was it was the best changeup in the sample. So, um, you know, as much as people worry about Shane Bieber, there might be another wrinkle to Shane Bieber still coming. I'm kind of blown away by that because my takeaway from Bieber has been last year was great, but what more could this guy possibly do? Like, how could he sustain that? He's already exceeded expectations, you know, relative to what everybody thought he was going to be by such a wide margin. Like, how could there be another level up? I mean, you you move him up further and he's cracking the, the elite of the elite. Yeah. I think that's there's there's arrows going in different directions. <laughs> you know, I think like uh, he's. I am a big uh, believer. Sorry, <laughs> um, that uh, uh, I think that like the regression arrow is pointing one direction. Yeah, like you know, maybe more home runs or fewer strikeouts or something. Uh, maybe worse luck on balls in play. He had like a 356 BABIP in his first year and he's always in the zone and has had some high BABIPs in the minors. And like, I could see that maybe. So I see some regression going, uh, coming for him, but I also, uh, see potential in the changeup and in his second half in the way that, um, he avoided the, the hot zones, the, the middle of the strike zone better, um, he pitched on the edges more often uh, in the chase zone as opposed to um, in the heart of the plate and that he has the great command to take advantage uh, of those strategies. So, you know, you add in the changeup and the, the better fastball location and I see an arrow going the other direction. And so I don't necessarily think he'll have a 3 2 ERA and a 105 whip again, but uh, I'll take the under on his projected basically 3 6 three, seven ERA um, and say he ends up a lot closer to what he did last year uh, than you know some big regression monster coming for him. He yeah, has he, he has other wrinkles. He has other things he can do still. Right, and if you can command things as well as Shane Bieber command things, that's a really nice advantage to have. I mean, I, I I'm looking back at his minor league numbers too. He did such a great job keeping the ball in the park everywhere he pitched in the minors, like really like extremely low home run rates and maybe this is a a pitching version of the hitter K rates conversation where there's something you can do in the minors that keeps the ball in the park that is not going to be nearly as effective against big league hitters right there's just a certain type of pitcher who gets away with things at those levels that you're just not going to get away with it could be a guy who fills up the zone it could be people in the minors sort of you know working on on things, working on strike zone recognition with uh, sub-average umpires behind them, you know, um, kind of trying to guess at the zone. And this guy, you know, knows it's like Joey Votto from the pitching side, you know. Um, but 
like I think the 130 home run thing, uh, the 1.3 home runs per nine last year, like I think that's going to go down. That's encouraging because he does pretty much everything well already or very well kind of across the board. Uh, anything else that jumped out at you, you before we started recording it? You brought up Jorge Lopez because I think no. you, you'd like to bring up Jorge Lopez a lot. I don't. I don't because I know I'm going to be wrong. I know that this is this is striking me as like my Alan Webster thing again where <laughs> there's something I'm missing about Jorge Lopez. The, the numbers are missing and it, like I'm going to be wrong, so I'm not going to talk about it too much, but. You know who I mean, might have yeah. that secret sauce for you is the Brewers. Like they, you know, they traded him away. Like they, I don't know. Like they seem to. Yeah, that's not a good sign either, man. The Brewers traded you away, and they need pitching, and they are the masters of taking you know raw stuff and 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 molding it into into better pitchers than you'd expect. I think, and they decided not to do that with Jorge Lopez, who has like a power sinker. Uh, a power curveball and a by this uh, 101 uh, stuff stuff uh, plus uh, changeup that he doesn't throw very often. But um, I think it may have to do with uh, command rates within it. Like I think he uh, has some command of some pitches, so he shows up as having like okay overall command, but he doesn't have good enough command of all of his pitches to actually throw them when he needs to throw them and throw them where he needs to throw them. So. I bet you he gets beat up on certain pitches. Also, sinkers are out of uh, favor. Um, and so maybe there's just something about the interaction of his sinker stuff and his command of the sinker that just doesn't work. I I, I don't want to – I just don't want my name associated with him anymore. <laughs> I'm like I'm, – I have a feeling I'm wrong about him. I just – I do have to mention him because because every time I do a, uh, any kind of sort, I'm like, oh, God Jorge Lopez is on this again. <laughs> he, I mean, he underperformed at every level for the K rates and walk rates and, and home run rates that he was putting up. Like his ratios were always worse than his FIP, with the exception of one really good year at Double A in 2015. Like that's the only minor league season where you look back and go, "Hey, he was really good that year." And yet, even with that, he was always flirting with the back of top 100 prospect lists and. Um, probably one of those guys. Yeah, it's maybe a little bit like the Ronaldo Lopez problem too, where there's there's stuff that stands out that looks like it should work, and yeah, in unison, it just doesn't work. Yeah, and, and deconstructing yeah. it's tough. My 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 favorite uh, prognostication for him now is that I think he can be a pretty good reliever, uh, and I don't think that's really going out on too much of a limb, considering he sat 94 as a starter. So, like, if he can sit 96, 97 on a power sinker uh, and focus just on that curveball, maybe that he can command better. I think you know, there's there have been worse pitchers that have turned into better relievers. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, I, I think he'll I think he'll be a good reliever. Um, it, it, Mike Fulty Navich stands out to me a little bit because he had an 89 stuff plus uh, changeup. Uh, but he got 35% wisp per swing uh, versus 29 average, 51% called strikes versus 40% average. So he gets a lot out of a changeup that he throws 9% of the time. Um, he just seems to know when to throw that. It's not a great pitch, but that's that's a show-me pitch. If you want to see a show-me pitch, watch Mike Voltinavich throw a changeup. Um, that that's the definition of it. What we're trying to look for is kind of changeups that have a little bit more upside. And those changeups to me are like Bauer, Bieber, um, 
maybe Adrian Hauser having one is is an interesting thing. Uh, and definitely Boyd uh, at the top of the list. Yeah, I think I remember you saying Boyd's been trying to get that change up to play up a bit for a while now. It's kind of been a priority for him. If you're dealing with a condition like erectile dysfunction, you want treatment ASAP. That's why our friends at Roman have spent years building a digital platform that can connect you with a doctor licensed in your state, all from the comfort of home. Roman makes it convenient to get the treatment you need on your schedule. Just grab your phone or computer, complete a free online visit, and you'll hear back from a U.S. licensed physician within 24 hours. And if the doctor decides that treatment is right for you, Roman's Pharmacy can ship your medication to you with free two-day shipping. You also get free unlimited follow-ups with your doctor anytime you have questions or want to adjust your treatment plan. With Roman, there are no commitments. You can cancel anytime. So if you're struggling with ED, go to GetRoman.com slash rates for a free online visit and free two-day shipping. That's GetRoman.com slash rates for a free online visit and free two-day shipping. All right, you know, pitcher workloads have been a topic that have come up a few times on this show, probably in the last two months or so. Uh, We had a question from Mike in New Jersey. He wanted to know, what impact will a shortened 2020 season have on workloads for 2021 for different classes of pitchers? So will it be difficult for guys like DeGrom and Bueller, Bieber, to get back to the 200 innings pitch level after a shortened season and does this reset innings counts for guys who were climbing and developmentally were trying to get to the 120 to 150 range? He cites like AJ Puck and Jesus Lazardo, uh, assuming they even approach 100 or 110 innings this year. So, you know, overall, how does this potentially impact 2021 workloads? Because uh, in Mike's case, he's in a keeper league where he has to decide on holding players at you know sort of elevated prices, and if there's a belief that this is going to have a carryover effect of some kind maybe trading those guys away or at least not keeping them at their full price is something that he's going to have to think about. I would not be concerned about it. I would uh, just generally bucket this as something um, that we can't know that we won't know and that we shouldn't get too concerned about. And this is why. So on the younger guys, there is maybe uh, some concern that they won't, just you know, like when they when we we go to the Arizona Fall League every year, and they send the younger guys there just to know what it's like to to play 162, to play deep into the year, to play every day uh, for a long period of time. That that is a general thing that is for hitters and pitchers. They send them to the Arizona Fall League so they can be tired, so they know what it's like to to play tired and to uh, to extend a season out like that. There may be some concern that someone like a Luzardo or Puck won't get from this season that experience of being with the big league team for a full season. Um, however, um, I don't think that it will necessarily, I think that like the way that people think about workload now is a little bit more about um, your training, like how much you do to prepare versus how much they ask of you uh, in peak. It's called acute to chronic ratio. So like Game day is a certain amount of stress and you have to make sure that you build to the game day stress uh, using like building up your stamina. So, you know, I was looking at this when I was running. And so in order to run 13 miles, uh, you have to run, you have to run some peak stuff before that. You have to run some eights or some sevens and you have to get there, but you also have to run a bunch of threes and fives, what they call as you feel days, where 
you just you you go out there and you run and you feel your body and you like you're pushing your entire fitness forward but you're not you're not doing that acute stress which is game day stress the the peak run you're not doing that so the way that people think about workloads and stress is more on the sort of ramping up and ramping down uh philosophy so I don't think that there's too many teams that are obsessed with like 125 or this or that. I think it's more like, you know, uh, can we get him ready? Is he stretched out? If he is stretched out, how long do we want him to be stretched out? And then we have to bring him back down again. Um, and that's, uh, that's, I think how people, at least on the player development side, think about, about workload stress. Um, you have to put that in with the idea that like, uh, Luzardo may not get a full season, but I don't think that, let's say we had a full season this year and he threw whatever he threw. I don't think they would throw him in the 220 inning bucket next year anyway. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I think it's sort of just a gradual process of, of lengthening where you, it's almost like lengthening for a start on a seasonal level. You kind of lengthen them for a season on a career level. And so I, I think maybe. There's a little bit of setback, but that's going to be for all young pitchers. I, I can't imagine any young pitchers are out in front of other young pitchers on this way, uh, unless they're like Paddock and and had a young had a full season the, the year before. Now for old pitchers, I think that um, it'll be mostly irrelevant because they will get up to their the point where they can handle the acute stress. They'll pitch for a while, and then and there'll be actually fewer uh, chances for them to be to be uh, injured as long as they follow their process and don't get uh, stressed out too much. Um, and I think if you if you're like reading between the lines there and saying there's too much BS in this answer, you know, I agree with you. I think that we just don't know, and like I don't know uh, that you can separate out any group and be like this group is going to be fine and this group is not. Um, I think it's going to be a very unique pitcher to pitcher thing. And, but I can't imagine like a Jake DeGrom is going to throw 160 innings in 2021 because he only threw a hundred innings, uh, in, in 2020. I just, I don't see that happening. No, I mean, it's possible that fewer acute tests of workload would make the increased number of tests in a future year, make make those guys more susceptible to injury or something random like that. But it's, yeah, I don't think it would be by design that he'd say, oh, we can't push him as hard or we don't expect that to be something he can do. So I wouldn't... The only the other caveat I'd have and does also does not apply to Jacob deGrom is that I do think that we are going to go even further into kind of bullpen game territory this year, especially if uh, pitchers are coming off a shorter spring um, and rosters are expanded. Now, I don't know how much of that will carry over to 20. Like, are we going to just go back to 26 man rosters in, um, in 2021? And if we do that, uh, does that eradicate most of the bullpen stuff? But I do think we're going to see a fair amount of bullpen games this year. Yeah, I think that's pretty clear, especially early in the year. But I think with expanded rosters, teams that don't have five good starters can cobble it together a bit more. And, and perhaps, again, some of those middle pack teams that have increased playoff odds can actually find a way to win uh, whereas previously maybe that wasn't on the table because they couldn't manage their entire staff quite the same way again kind of an extreme example but just one way that a team that wouldn't have been a playoff contender over 162 could get there in 82 games Uh, thanks a lot for the question Mike there's a keeper question from Dustin that came in he can keep two prospects on his roster for the future bunch of good names Royce Lewis Kelnick Julio Rodriguez Christian Pache uh, Matt Manning, Luis Patino, 
Sixto Sanchez, CJ Adams, Joey Bart were the names he sent us. Uh, Julio Rodriguez is kind of in a class of his own. You know, like I, I know that you tend to be looking more for the guys who are ready to go and, and not stashing away, but he's got dedicated prospect spots here. I mean, Julio Rodriguez, to me, is, is going to be a star. And I don't know if we can say that about anybody, anybody else on this list with as much certainty. Uh, I think Royce Lewis and Jared Kelnick are the, the two guys I'd be thinking most about for that second spot, though. You know, like, Do you have a, a lean from anybody else in that list or Kelnick or Lewis for the second spot? This looks familiar. Like I maybe answered it on Twitter, but um, yeah, I, I I zoomed in on Kalanich and Rodriguez as my two. Um, the the thing that my separate, if I had to pick one, I think that would be difficult because they are so different. Kalanich is more ready. Uh, Julio probably has more ceiling. Kalanich steals some, which is is something I look for. Um, but Julio might be able to put together like a good strikeout rate with with awesome power. Um, I'm not saying he's Juan Soto, but there might be like a little bit of that, um, in his future. So, uh, between the two of those, I feel really good. Royce Lewis and Pache are close-ish, but they still have things they need to do right. Like, Kalish and Rodriguez haven't done anything wrong yet. And they, they could just continue this all the way to the major leagues. Lewis and Pache have to kind of at least when it comes to results, have to kind of uh, make some changes, make some adjustments. People think they can, uh, but they haven't. They, they still have work to do, in other words. Witt is further away. Bart is a catcher. Um, Abrams uh, is the – is. I might put them ahead of, ahead of Lewis and Pache just because uh, he kind of gives me a little bit of that Julio Rodriguez ceiling feeling. Um, but I, you know, uh, about Abrams and, and you might have to think about this in terms of what's going to happen this year without a minor league season. So you have a 50 man roster and, and I'm going to have to write about this at some point, but you have a 50 man roster. You have 30, uh, players in the big leagues and you have 20, you have this 20 man taxi squad, uh, and the taxi squad. So you, you're going to have two things you want to do with the taxi squad. One is uh, have players that are there for your major league team to step in, basically have injury replacements. And that's going to be, you're going to think that there's going to be a lot of injuries this year. So that's, I would say is going to take up 17 to 19 out of the 20 spots yeah. are players. You think could come up and play for your major league team. If you had an injury, I think that's going to be a huge part of the 20 man taxi squads. The other part, uh, and I was talking uh, to someone uh, uh, about one of the players on this list in particular and, and the 20 man roster. And they said, Oh yeah, he might be our 20th man. So the, the other part is they're not going to have a minor league season. They're not going to have the same development process. You might want to take some of your best prospects. And so it's somebody like Wander Franco, like maybe he could be a 20th man for the Rays just because you want him around the big leaguers. You want to keep him developing and you want to keep him going. You know, I think Abrams could be a, a 20th man. Bart uh, could be a 20th man. Um, you know, most of this list could be a 20th man. Like, I don't know if Witt will be because are the Royals in a place where they they really want, um, you know, what's the Royals uh, calculus going to be between winning now, having players that are ready now, how much they want Witt around. Uh, but, 
you, there is going to be something that happens this year where like non elite prospects are just going to lose a full year. Yeah. And that's going to be, I think really tricky. As you said, for like the guys who were drafted in June, like figuring out which of those yeah. guys are actually ready. The college guys, you can kind of see it. High school. What's guys. Torkelson going to do this year? I think this is a terrible year. You know, in every dynasty league, or you know, in every dynasty league, they can do this. That where you can gather players before they're drafted. I always look at that strategy and say, "Good on you. I'm not going to participate." Yeah, <laughs> because I just feel like uh, you have to get like the first. Yet not even the first round. You have to get like the top. You have to get one of the top ten guys uh, to get it right. And then this year in particular. Uh, it's, it's just, uh, devastating, I think, because they're just going to lose a full year of development. Um, and we've never had this in the history of baseball where like people didn't play baseball. It's not that they were injured. They just didn't play baseball. Just breaks for the first time for 10, 15 years for some of these guys. Like yeah. playing since they were five or six years old and that's what they did every summer. What is Eventually it do? became a year round thing and now it's just not there. Maybe it could be good. I mean, maybe they maybe they have good health outcomes later because they just took a year off. But uh, I mean, they're going to train, but they're not going to they're not going to have full time play. I mean, I wonder if like all their strikeout rates go through the roof when they first come back because they just haven't seen elite pitching for a while. So I um, I don't know. I I think if uh, you were if like Torkelson was on this list, I might say I'd take Kellenish and Rodriguez over him because I just you know not getting any information about a player for a full year just uh, gives me the willies. Yeah. You know, for me, Kelnick versus Lewis, I, I think because Royce Lewis was a little bit below average at high A and double A as a hitter last year, that's enough for me to go ahead and say Kelnick's the better option. He's 20, he has better work nine, to do, right? percent Yeah. Like he's, he's closer from an offensive standpoint. Royce Lewis might be the better long-term big league player because he can play more spots. He could play up the middle in the infield, but there is a risk that bats. The Mariners have this 20th man strategy. And one of those Mariners, you don't get any information from, but at least you have the information they put up already in the minor leagues, which uh, suggests that both of them are going to be special players. I think I'll try to be succinct. I think any team who isn't playing for right now that leaves guys that are near big league ready off that, that extra 20 group, they're making a huge mistake development. Probably. It's like you invite young prospects to spring training or you give them September call-ups in the past because you want them to be around the veterans. You want them to be in that environment. The coaching sometimes is better at the big leagues. And then you'll get, you'll get knowledge from other players like pitch grips and, you know, approach tips. Yeah. So like use those spots. Like, sure. You want to use some of them to have reinforcements, like you said, but if you're not playing for this year, and a bunch of outfielders get hurt, and you have to throw Rodriguez or, or Kelnich on the roster for a little while. Is that the worst thing ever? No. Like, you lose a little bit of service time. But in the grand scheme of things, you still want to make sure these players develop correctly. And you mm-hmm. want them to be ready when your team is ready to be competitive again. And to not include them on the expanded rosters, that I just think that's really short-sighted. And it's going to end up hurting you more than saving that service time and saving that money is going to help you. The French cases will be really hard to decide. I think Abrams would be really hard to decide because yeah. the Padres are going to be competitive this year. They're going to have a lot of prospects that, that are ready, like Patino, Gore. They'll have a lot of um, young players that they want to keep like that will actually play this year. 
And I and I can't imagine that like a 19 year old C.J. Abrams that's that's played nine plate appearances of A ball uh, is going to be called up to play big in the big leagues. Total chaos, as we've said time and time again. But uh, I'm taking the two Mariners off that list if I'm in Dustin's shoes. I never take you know Patino, Sixto, Manning, and Bart like. As much as I love Patino, uh, and I just wouldn't take a pitcher or a catcher. No, can't do it. Even in two catcher leagues, too, I'm, I'm not not stashing Bart with those other options. They just uh, take available. so long. They debut later. They their offensive offense peaks later. Uh, they their their plate appearance upside is so low. I'm with you. It's uh, it's something that I've over time. Like I used to chase them, thinking. I'm going to have an elite catcher. The payoff's going to be worth it. And a lot of times they just don't hit as much as you expect right away. So even when they come up and they're playing, they they take a couple of years to sort of reach that offensive peak. Yeah, because there's like 8 million things being thrown at them when they get to the park. <laughs> yeah, it's, well, it's like playing quarterback in the NFL, like yeah. roughly, like being the defensive rigors of being a catcher are pretty significant. And that's a lot to to have on your plate in addition to learning how to hit top level pitching and handling the pitching staff, you know, that's been something that has had to come first for a long time for for big league teams and how they develop players at that position. If you're enjoying this show on a platform that allows you to rate and review it, please take the time to do that. We greatly appreciate it. If you're not already subscribed to The Athletic, you can get a 90-day free trial at theathletic.com/free90 days and if you could support the site with a paid subscription, please do that at theathletic.com slash rates and barrels. As always, you can reach us via email, rates and barrels at theathletic.com. Just spell out the word and. If you go that route, you can tweet at us. He's at Eno Saris, and I am at Derek Van Riper. That is going to wrap things up for this episode of Rates and Barrels. We are back with you on Thursday. Thanks for listening.